Welcome to the Waldorf Astoria. Today is April 27, 1961. I'm George Butler reporting, and joining me is Charlotte Brown. Thank you, George. In a few moments, our president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, will be addressing the Newspaper Publishers Association. Our president will be giving a speech entitled, The President and the Press. Charlotte, according to our advanced copy, it appears this speech might be somewhat controversial. What's your view of this speech? Yes, George, I do believe it might be controversial. Yes, it seems that it lays out in explicit terms the battles ahead. States. Ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate very much your generous invitation to be here tonight. You bear heavy responsibilities these days, and the article I read uh, some time ago reminded me of how particularly heavily the burdens of present-day events bear upon your profession. You may remember that in 1851, the New York Herald Tribune, under the sponsorship and publishing of Horace Greeley, employed as its London correspondent an obscure journalist by the name of Karl Marx. We are told that foreign correspondent Marx, stone broke, and with a family ill and undernourished, constantly appealed to Greeley and managing editor Charles Dana for an increase in his munificent salary of $5 per installment, a salary which he and Ingalls ungratefully labeled as the lousiest petty bourgeois cheating. (laughs) But when all his financial appeals were refused, Marx looked around for other means of livelihood and fame, eventually terminating his relationship with the Tribune and devoting his talents full-time to the cause that would bequeath to the world the seeds of Leninism, Stalinism, Revolution, and the Cold War. If only this capitalistic New York newspaper had... (laughs) had treated him more kindly. If only Marx had remained a foreign correspondent, history might have been different. And I... I hope all publishers will bear this lesson in mind (laughs) the next time they receive a poverty-stricken appeal from a small increase in the expense account from an obscure newspaper man. (laughs) I have uh, selected as the title of my remarks tonight, The President and the Press. Some may suggest that this would be more naturally worded the president versus the press, but those are not my sentiments tonight. 
It is true, however, that when a well-known diplomat from another country demanded recently that our State Department repudiate certain newspaper attacks on his colleague, it was unnecessary for us to reply that this administration was not responsible for the press, for the press had already made it clear that it was not responsible for this administration. <laughs> Nevertheless, my purpose here tonight is not to deliver the usual assault on the so-called one-party press. On the contrary, in recent months, I have rarely heard any complaints about political bias in the press except from a few Republicans. <laughs> Nor is it my purpose tonight to discuss or defend the televising of presidential press conferences. I think it is highly beneficial to have some 20 million Americans regularly sit in on these conferences to observe, if I may say so, the incisive, the intelligent, and the courteous qualities displayed by your Washington correspondents. <laughs> Nor, finally, are these remarks intended to examine the proper degree of privacy which the press should allow to any president and his family. If, in the last few months, your White House reporters and photographers have been, in, have been attending church services with regularity, <laughs> that has surely done them no harm. <laughs> On the other hand, I realize that your staff and wire service photographers may be complaining that they do not enjoy the same green privileges, the local golf courses, which they once did. It is true that my predecessor did not object, as I do, to pictures of one's golfing skill in action. But neither, on the other hand, did he ever been a Secret Service man. <laughs> my uh, topic tonight is a more sober one, of concern to publishers as well as editors. I want to talk about our common responsibilities in the face of a common danger. The events of recent weeks may have helped to illuminate that challenge for some, but the dimensions of its threat have loomed large on the horizon for many years. Whatever our hopes may be for the future, for reducing this threat or living with it, there is no escaping either the gravity or the totality of its challenge to our survival and to our security, a challenge that confronts us in unaccustomed ways in every sphere of human activity. This deadly challenge imposes upon our society two requirements of direct concern, both to the press and to the president. Two requirements that may seem almost contradictory in tone, but which must be reconciled and fulfilled if we are to meet this national peril. I refer first to the need for far greater public information, and second, to the need for far greater official secrecy. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago 
that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. But I do ask... But I do ask every publisher, every editor, and every newsman in the nation to re-examine his own standards and to recognize the nature of our country's peril. In time of war, the government and the press have customarily joined in an effort based largely on self-discipline to prevent unauthorized disclosures to the enemy. In times of clear and present danger, the courts have held that even the privileged rights of the First Amendment must yield to the public's need for national security. Today, no war has been declared, and however fierce the struggle may be, it may never be declared in the traditional fashion. Our way of life is under attack. Those who make themselves our enemy are advancing around the globe. The survival of our friends is in danger, and yet no war has been declared. No borders have been crossed by marching troops. No missiles have been fired. If the press is awaiting a declaration of war before it imposes the self-discipline of combat conditions, then I can only say that no war ever posed a greater threat to our security. If you are awaiting a finding of clear and present danger, then I can only say that the danger has never been more clear and its presence has never been more imminent. It requires a change in outlook, a change in tactics, a change in missions by the government, by the people, by every businessman or labor leader, and by every newspaper. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, 
No rumor is printed. No secret is revealed. It conducts the Cold War in short. With a wartime discipline, no democracy would ever hope or wish to match. Nevertheless, every democracy recognizes the necessary restraints of national security. And the question remains whether those restraints need to be more strictly observed if we are to oppose this kind of attack as well as outright invasion. For the facts of the matter are that this nation's foes have openly boasted of acquiring through our newspapers information they would otherwise hire agents to acquire through theft, bribery, or espionage, that details of this nation's covered preparations to counter the enemy's covered operations have been available to every newspaper reader, friend and foe alike, that the size, the strength, the location, and the nature of our forces and weapons and our plans and strategy for their use have all been pinpointed in the press and other news media to a degree sufficient to satisfy any foreign power, and that in at least one case, the publication of details concerning a secret mechanism whereby satellites were followed required its alteration at the expense of considerable time and money. The newspapers which printed these stories were loyal, patriotic, responsible, and well-meaning. Had we been engaged in open warfare, they undoubtedly would not have published such items. But in the absence of open warfare, they recognized only the tests of journalism and not the tests of national security. And my question tonight is whether additional tests should not now be adopted. That question is for you alone to answer. No public official should answer it for you. No governmental plan should impose its restraints against your will. But I would be failing in my duty to the nation in considering all of the responsibilities that we now bear and all of the means at hand to meet those responsibilities if I did not commend this problem to your attention and urge its thoughtful consideration. On many earlier occasions I have said, and your newspapers have constantly said, that these are times that appeal to every citizen's sense of sacrifice and self-discipline. They call out to every citizen to weigh his rights and comforts against his obligations to the common good. I cannot now believe that those citizens who serve in the newspaper business consider themselves exempt from that appeal. I have no intention of establishing a new office of war information to govern the flow of news. I am not suggesting any new forms of censorship or new types of security classifications. I have no easy answer to the dilemma that I have posed and would not seek to impose it if I had one. But I am asking the members of the newspaper profession and the industry in this country to re-examine their own responsibilities, to consider the degree and the nature of the present danger, and to heed the duty of self-restraint which that danger imposes upon us all. Every newspaper now asks itself, with respect to every story, is it news? All I suggest is that you add the question, is it in the interest of national security? And I hope that every group in America, unions and businessmen and public officials at every level, will ask the same question of their endeavors 
and subject their actions to this same exacting test. And should the press of America consider and recommend the voluntary assumption of specific new steps or machinery, I can assure you that we will cooperate wholeheartedly with those recommendations. Perhaps there will be no recommendations. Perhaps there is no answer to the dilemma faced by a free and open society in a cold and secret war. In times of peace, any discussion of this subject and any action that results are both painful and without precedent. But this is a time of peace and peril which knows no precedent in history. It is the unprecedented nature of this challenge that also gives rise to your second obligation, an obligation which I share. And that is our obligation to inform and alert the American people, to make certain that they possess all the facts that they need and understand them as well, the perils, the prospects, the purposes of our program and the choices that we face. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence... and the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate... Without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And we intend to do it. It was early in the 17th century that Francis Bacon remarked on three recent inventions already transforming the world, the compass, gunpowder, and the printing press. Now the links between the nations, first forged by the compass, have made us all citizens of the world. The hopes and threats of one 
becoming the hopes and threats of us all. In that one world's effort to live together, the evolution of gunpowder to its ultimate limit has warned mankind of the terrible consequences of failure. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. Welcome to the World Review Commentary, this 25th day of November 2007. And I'm, we're broadcasting live from the Texas School Book Depository. This program is, is dedicated to the memory of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I'm, I'm sitting here on my left is Charlotte Littlefield Brown. Charlotte, what did you think about that speech? It was uh, outstanding. It was quite um, applicable to today, even though it's a very old speech. Yes, that, that speech was given on April 27th, 1961, and it was so... God, so prophetic. Welcome to our program, Alan Watt. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I can hear you fine. We we dedicated this. We're we're de- we're sitting at the spot here. We're we're sitting in the lobby of the of Texas School Book Depository. We did a tour earlier of the grounds and so forth. And Charlotte was down here last week. And that, what did you think about that speech? I noticed you put this up, what, over a year ago in June of 2006, or what, 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 what did you say on your page back then? I mentioned the, the fact that, that Candy basically knew, and he mentions it in, in his talk, of, of a conspiracy itself, a huge conspiracy. And he mentioned the fact, too, that it was so well organized through economics and military and uh, academia, basic and media, that democratic nations could hardly stand against it because democratic nations, um, really that's the, the opponent of this, the particular group that runs the world, the reality as we know it. They run the media, they run the military, they're coordinated, and uh, they originated in Britain a long time ago. And Professor Carroll quickly called it uh, the Anglo-American establishment. Yes, uh, I believe uh, Paul Dell Scott uh, coined the term deep history. Is this the way you could characterize this also? Uh, there's no doubt. Uh, um, a history that is not written. It's uh, what we're presented most of the time is just for the for our feedings. Is some something like that? Is that that your idea? Well, well here's a, a quote, for instance, from. Professor Carol Quigley, who was a historian for one of the branches of this power, and he believed in its goals, but he was a bit wary of some of its methods. But he was the official historian. Now, in Britain, its main, one of its main uh, groups, there are many groups attached to it, and it really originated uh, hundreds of years ago in Britain, but came to the fore in the late 1800s when the British aristocracy saw this odd phenomenon called democracy coming along and people demanding rights. And they, they claimed the conclusion after many, many meetings of the, the largest uh, aristocratic families in Europe uh, that there were too many irreconcilable differences in humanity with racial differences, religious, 
economic and so on ever uh, to, to allow a, a plan or an agenda of progress to continue. So they, they came up with the idea of shaping the world's view of things while this real group would, would go ahead in their uh, plan of progress. And this is what Carl Quigley said about it on page 197 of the Anglo-American establishment. And remember, he worked for the American, one of the American branches called the Council on Foreign Relations, which is just um, the foreign branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs for Britain. And he says, a brief sketch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs does not by any means indicate the very considerable influence which the organization exerts in English-speaking countries in the sphere of which it is devoted. The extent of that influence must be obvious. The purpose of this chapter has been something else, to show that the Milner Group, this is part of the, the group that started it, controls the Institute. Once that is established, the picture changes. The influence of Chatham House, that's our main house in London, the one in New York is called the Harold Pratt Building. It appears in its true perspective, not as the influence of an autonomous body, but as merely one of the many instruments in the arsenal of another power. And that's what he's telling you there. It's an arsenal of another power. It's a power which coexists uh, alongside what you see as democracy. He says, when the influence which the Institute wields is combined with that controlled by the Milner Group and other fields in education, you, you see, they run the education system. In administration, that's in politics and bureaucracy. In newspapers and periodicals, they make sure the largest newspaper groups are owned by their members. He said, a really hor a terrifying picture begins to emerge. The picture is called terrifying not because the power of, the, of this group was used for evil ends, he says, on the contrary, it was generally used with the best intentions in the, in the world, even if those intentions were so idealistic as to be almost academic. The picture is terrifying because such power, whatever the goals at which it may be directed, is too much to be entrusted safely to any group. Then he goes on to tell you why. Now, these are this, this group, this particular group, in the book here, he comes out with their histories, and he was given access to their records. And he tells you how they were behind the main world wars that we knew of. Even before world wars, they started up the Boer War in South Africa. They are backed by the royalty of Europe. They're, they have a, been given an official royal charter. And as I say, their idea was to combat and control, in fact, uh, what, we, what we see as democracy or democratic governments. And they've been doing it uh, since the 1800s. Alan, uh, what do you think they uh, thought of our president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy? It's pretty obvious that he um, he was torn between two different ideals. He, he himself came from a, a family that made money, like many of them did, in certain rackets, um, and like many of the of the British imperialists did it too, involved in the various opium trades and eventually the, the alcohol trades and prohibition. Um, but We've got to cut away here for a second. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. Yes. Take, take a quick break. We'll be right back at the bottom of the hour. Remember, remember the 5th of November. I'm Ron Paul, and you're listening to We the People Radio Network. Welcome back to the secret to... War Review Commentary. 
This is George Butler reporting live from Dallas, Texas, along with Charlotte Littlefield Brown. Uh, Alan, let me give you a little a more of a formal introduction here. In all ages, in all lands, there have been those who seek truth. This seeking is an individual search for something more than self and much more than the confines of this worldly system. It is the seeker who understands there is more than what meets the eye, who is not afraid and makes a choice to go into the unknown. The process of making, of awakening has begun. The discovery is underway, written 2007 by Alan Watt. Welcome back to World Review Commentary, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here, yeah. We're, we're really sitting here in, in a very historical place, and uh, I think the the actual assassination would anniversary would have been last Thursday, but the nearest that we could you know come in here would be uh, today on Sunday you know, on the World Review Commentary Program, and so we went out and toured the grounds earlier, and and uh, the 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 snipers wherever they were like behind the picket fence or something it wasn't 75 feet away. Yeah, they were very they're very very close in in uh, shots and from the top of the building here. Uh, the sniper's nest was maybe 100 feet or something, 125 feet at the most. Yes. Uh, when, when we talk about these world systems, um, Kennedy, um, yeah, anyway, uh, had had something to say about that in that speech. But anyway, I think Charlotte wanted to, to continue with her question uh, earlier. Uh-huh. Yeah. Go ahead. So, Alan, yes, you were uh, you were answering the question before the break about what the uh, establishment, I'm going to call them the Anglo-American establishment, what they uh, possibly, what their view was was of our president. He was not, as they call it in, in Freemasonry, towing the line. He was not towing the line. He was, he had twinges of something which you cannot have if you're a member of the elite, and that's conscience. And uh, he he thought that the people should, should know um and have more say in, in their own affairs. He, I'm sure, I mean, at that, at that level that he was in, especially when his father was Joseph, and Joseph was a close associate with Queen, the, 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 the royalty used to go over to, to the Buckingham Palace and, and with his wife and live there for weeks at a time. So he knew the agenda, I've no doubt about it, but he had a twinge of conscience being the son of Joseph, and, and um, he tried to tell the people uh, where it was heading. He saw the flaws in the agenda, too, because for the, for the elite's point of view, they're not flaws. They want a world system. And this is the same group that uh, funded Karl Marx in the 1800s from London, England. That's where he wrote the manifesto, the Communist Manifesto, where he said uh, later on in Das Kapital, uh, there will be three world trading blocks a united Europe and followed by a united Americas and then the Pacific Rim conglomerate which would be presided over by a single government and that, that's what the United Nations was set up for and Carl Quigley again verifies this in his book Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment he said that they funded and set up the League of Nations which became the United Nations to do that actual thing so they're all fronts, actually, including the United Nations. They're front groups for a different purpose, a controlled society of a, a very wealthy elite um, of aristocracy who truly believe uh, they are the most superior types on the planet through breeding, selective breeding, and so on, the accumulation of power, wealth. 
and that there's, below them they have the, the commoners, the, the junk genes, as they laughingly call it, and, um, and they want to plan a, a future. Uh, they don't believe in society simply evolving willy-nilly and piecemeal. They plan the future like long-term business plans. So as I say, all the way back to the 1800s, you can find uh, these organizations all coming out with British uh, royal charters, a stamp of approval of the crown of Britain behind them. And to go even further, this group created uh, what we call MI5 and 6. Um, MI6 evolved really out of, like the CIA evolved out of the OSS during World War II. Well, the headquarters of, of this uh, this OSS was at Chatham House. That was the headquarters. So in other words, the Royal Institute for International Affairs already was uh, your, your, your world's largest CIA headquarters, and it still is today. They're all intertwined with, with this one organization, and so is the CIA. And uh, your media barons all belong to it at the top as well. They're all members of this. And that's what Carl Quigley was saying. We are given a fake reality uh, through altered and distorted or very misleading news. And we have been for a 100 years. So, so they, so this system is is much more, uh, much larger than than the average person could ever imagine. Yes, and and it's entangling us. It's psychological. It's 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 mind washing. It's 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 uh, propagandizing. I guess Joseph Goebbels said, "The bigger the lie, the easier to sell." Huh? Yes, that's absolutely. The thing and, is, and, these little people, ordinary people, little people, understand little lies, and we go we'll laugh when we hear politicians give little lies out, but when they tell a real whopper of a lie, it's so huge telling it to a whole world, we can't imagine ourselves doing it, therefore we have to believe it. <laughs> yeah, as simple as that. When you say 9-11 is one of those myths that has been created, uh, the yeah. the government version of it, it's so, it's so mind-boggling that emotionally it's hard to accept. Uh, absolutely, like to absolutely, and yet they use the standard psychological techniques from Rumsfeld, Cheney, uh, even Brzezinski came out, uh, eventually they had Condoleezza Rice eventually when she came out, and they all came out of these meetings talking to the press and using the same catchphrases, weapons of mass destruction, repetitive stuff that they're taught to tell the public. And they lied and they lied and they lied and they lied, and then they were exposed lying and, and uh, with counterintelligence news on mainstream as well, and the following day the same characters are telling the same lies again. Uh, these are psychopathic types, you see. They, they have no conscience, and they don't blush when they lie to the world. They don't blush. Could that be uh, a part of the gene pool? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you probably yeah, why right, is so it that... Is. that yeah. why, why is that uh, particular trait seem to be so pervasive? Uh, you know, and that, or, and of course they screen people that they bring in from uh, the damage. Would you call it the? They call us the uh, the, the uh, damage genes, the or damage something. genes, or whatever. Yeah. So they screen yeah. people through, and if they meet a certain psychological profile, mm -hmm. then they'll be allowed to work or move in, you know, towards uh, the center. Of course, nobody. Yes. Off the street, ever gets in there, but M Michael Andrig on on his book on the causes of war identified a psychopathic personality type that is attracted into these power yep. groups. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Uh, oh, there's no doubt at all. Uh, unfortunately, the entire system we live in, you see, psychopaths or pathocracy, as it's been termed, um, have always been here in a moneyed system because they crave power 
and money is power in this in this system because the culture they give us and the system we live in is actually theirs. We emulate their system. We don't have all the psychopathic traits, but those even in the lower strata who are born occasionally with psychopathic traits will succeed. They'll claw up to the top. They're vicious, ruthless, and cunning, and they have no conscience, and therefore they do get to the top in this system. That's why they always gravitate into politics and political positions. They like the feelings of power. It's a craving that goes with being a psychopath because a psychopath wants to control. They need to control to feel safe. It, it, is another characteristic they have no conscience whatsoever? They have that, no conscience. That, uh... Yeah, they have no conscience. That's true. They have no empathy. They grow up almost like a camera uh, studying people but not and watching the reactions and the emotions but not uh, feeling the emotions of those people. But they're very good actors. They're very. In fact, a lot of them go into acting. And, and they do. <laughs> Some of yeah. our finest actors could be this way, right? Yeah, that's right. So... Yeah, at the time of uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, assassination, there were a lot of things happening that people point to um, yeah. that you know why he was assassinated. So, uh, what were the the forces during that time period in uh, John F. Kennedy's administration that you know people point to and say, well, that's why he got assassinated, or this is who did it? For example, so, um, yeah. I, it's my understanding he was going after uh, the deconstruction of the Federal Reserve System. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how true that was, but... That, that would get anybody that. killed. That would go, get anybody killed, that one. Because that was part of the whole structure, too. People think it's just a group of bankers that got together on Jekyll Island and uh, under the, the, with the leadership, too, of Mandel House, that eventually was the, the advisor to President Wilson that rammed it through. And all that was true, but what they don't tell you is that, that Mandel House was a member of this same organization based in London, and he took his orders from Sir Earl Grey, that was a member of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. It was all, always, always goes back to the same group, whereas the U.S. or any of the British Commonwealth countries we're talking about, it always goes back to the same group. They wanted um, a, a control over the world's resources and the money supply of the entire planet. We've got to cut away again, uh, Alan. We'll be back in just a few minutes. It's getting very interesting, though. Yep. Thank you very much. Great host, great topics, brief speech at its best. This is We the People Radio Network. Welcome back to World Review Commentary. This is your host, George Butler, along with Charlotte Littlefield Brown. Welcome back, Alan Wan. It's a pleasure to hear you. Um, this 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 system that we're describing and you so well describe, uh, it was a raid against him, was it not? Against John Fitzgerald Kennedy, these great powers and interest. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he, he was called he, uh, the champion yeah. of Camelot. Remember, and that's right, the champion of Camelot. Yeah, he was idealistic, yes. and uh, being idealistic and wanting to actually make changes and lead it yourself is taboo in this system where it's all done by consensus through this particular high organization. So uh, that's an unfortunate term they used. It was almost a death warrant in itself because we know what happened to King Arthur, you know. 
Do, do you think uh, what I see uh, from my side of things is that these groups that were together, whether it's the mafia and the CFR, or whatever, they started working together more closely after World War II or during World War II. Sometime. It's true that they, they worked the, very close then, especially in Italy. Uh, Patton could not have gone through so quickly without the cooperation of the mafia units in and, those and, that country. In Sicily, they, they sabotaged the Germans in Sicily, Sicily I understand, also. Yes. So, so I believe it's sort of, here's, here's my proposition and just sort of an idea. Was, was, was the President Kennedy not fully aware of the full cooperation of these different interests that had arrayed against him? Yes, he, oh, absolutely he was. There's no doubt about it. He was, um, uh, well aware of uh, but do you think he understood wrong. he did he understand the power that they had together and did he understand the close cooperation or was he sort of a little bit too idealistic he understood the cooperation uh, maybe he underestimated how ruthless it'd be even with himself I don't know well, that's what I'm saying maybe the ruthlessness he underestimated it's very possible it's very very possible or he could probably have trusted all his bodyguards uh, very, very well. A big mistake to make, actually. Um, but uh, I'm sure he must have. And we know that day, so many of the things just didn't make sense. It was much like 9-11. Um, on 9-11, they were having a practice drill on planes hit hitting the tower. What a coincidence. Just like with the bombs in London, they were having a practices with bombs going off exactly in those locations. They went off. Well, on, when Kennedy was assassinated, all the, the Air Force that was up, remember, in the Cold War, supposedly, with all their fail-safe books and so on, their manuals updated every day, that was the one day there was an exception. They were not given any books whatsoever, so they could not have attacked anything if someone had come in after Kennedy was killed and, and taken off and done something crazy. So they, they didn't want a reaction, a nuclear reaction, by the United States against anyone that was suspected of maybe... The assassinations. Yeah, in case someone layered down in the, in the chain of command gave the orders, they couldn't have gone anywhere anyway because they had nothing to follow. So, so someone at the very top had taken care of all that. Yeah. Colonel Fletcher Prouty, L. Fletcher Prouty, was down in the Antarctic during that time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, at the time of Kennedy's assassination, we have um, he's. Wanting to close down and dismantle the CIA, he dismissed Alan Dulles, right? Yep. He uh, had failed in Cuba. He was stepping on the oil interests. Um, of course, he was going up against the mafioso, he was jailing um, the mafia. Jimmy Hoffa was jailed. Right, and he was publicly speaking out against the secret societies. I mean, that is, if you want to cause a synergy. Exactly, because uh, these things are all interconnected. Remember, the mafia itself is only an arm. Actually, it's an organizational arm of the same group at the top because they use the overworld, the legal system, and they use the illegal system. And the mafia was set up by Giuseppe Mazzini, who was set up to start the World Revolutionary Society and, and on behalf of Britain. And Albert Pike uh, gave him the, the orders to take over the, Royal, the, the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. He was the head of it after, after Pike for a while. So these are all authorized groups coming out of the same system uh, under the guise of noble orders from from Britain. Is that uh, when people say the, the tentacles of the octopus? Is that kind of what they're referring to? Each one of these is an arm and... Yes. Well, anyways. Oh, absolutely. Um, that, absolutely. So. Uh, in fact, uh, as I say, when you go into the Cecil Rhodes will, who was given again a royal charter, 
uh, and a massive funding to make sure that the Rhodes Scholarship went on. And uh, many, some of your presidents have been Rhodes Scholars. You have about 200 high bureaucrats running your top department who are all coming from Rhodes Scholarships. And they were set up for world government. That's, that's what they swear allegiance to, world government. And they've been doing this in all the countries now for, for 100 years. So this, this, they run that system. They run the, the, the take over the resources of the world. That was another big, big mandate that they had. They set up huge institutes, private institutions that you think are charitable, like the Rockefeller Foundation, all leading towards world government and giving out world citizenship awards. But, but so they're after the, the, the wealth of the world. They run the military might of the world. They run the educational system of the world through UNESCO and through the national and international educational associations. They run the media of the world. They also, as Carl Quigley said in his own book, they write the histories of the world. So they give but you not the deep reality. history, right? <laughs> they write right. the shallow <laughs> histories, but not yep. the deep ones, right? Mm-hmm. That's yep. very powerful. Um, this uh, building, I would like to encourage anybody, if they are in Dallas, to come down and they call it the Sixth Floor Museum. Yeah, um, it's at 311 um, M Street. And it's uh, right across the road uh, between where the uh, the plaza is. And, it, and George and I uh, walked it this morning, and it's a very, it was a, uh, in military terms, uh, it, they, it was a perfect ambush location. There were, I would say, at least five different angles uh, to get in on the vehicle, and the distance was very short. Um, so, and of course, early in the morning, there were already uh, people down um, on the grounds, you know, selling magazines, selling newspapers. We met one fellow that was actually here that day. Yeah, they have the COPA uh, conference going on across the road. Jordan. Yeah, the COPA is the Coalition on Political Assassinations. That's meeting here in Dallas this weekend. And so uh, one of the gentlemen that was uh, attending the conference had come over, and I suppose it was just a... Uh, Looking at the the site, uh, he's from out of town up north somewhere. So it's a historical place. This is a non-profit uh, organization. They do, uh, right now they do not take any uh, government grants. They do not have donations. Basically, the museum uh, continues to go based on the admissions. So it's an independent ent- entity. And I, for one, am very grateful that they've stepped forward to restore this part of our history or to maintain it. Um, up on the sixth floor, there is a very interesting exhibit. You, um, of course, you pay your money and you get a set of headphones and you go up and you get to, they walk you through a very, um, elaborate um, presentation. And you get to, uh, part of the presentation is you actually look out the window, the sixth floor window. And then they also, at the very end, they present to you, uh, uh just, uh, about seven or eight conspiracy theories. And there's a, a so they are beginning to open up, I think, to several different you know, possible right. situations that did occur here and the mo- no motivation. No conclusions can be drawn from the museum, you know, as far as that goes. And then there was a display about the John Birch Society and a gentleman by the name of uh, Edwin Walker, who was, a, I guess he was an Army officer that was uh, disciplined for uh, passing out John Birch Society. So it's very historical. The things that were happening in the newspapers, um, it's all, you know, there on display. It's very interesting and encourage everybody to come down and uh, see this part of our history. So there's my my plug for the museum. <laughs> did you go around to the to, to the courthouse? Uh, no, we didn't make it over there yet, but it's real close by. Yeah, you stand up opposite and look at the dragons on top of the courthouse. Oh. <laughs> then look to you your know, left you there. Look to the left, and you'll see a pyramid at the top of a of a building. It's a big pyramid to the left, 
Then you really? see the, yeah, then look at the tri the three roads, the trident goes into Dile Plaza with the bridge I over see. it. The, the arc. The well, arc always goes over the, the trident and the mystery okay. religions. Would this then, also uh, represent in occultic type of uh, terms killing of the king? Well, yeah, killing of the king. In fact, if you go into the history of Dili Plaza, and you'll get quite the history on the land that those uh, three roads were built over. A lot of people died there before, so it was already ritualized, you might say. But the killing of the king is always when you... Even the high mystery religions, when you take the oath, uh, and the very high ones, you say that uh, your, your skull will be opened and the, the light of the sun will be on your your head, on your brain, and they literally opened up his skull, skull as he was driving into the sun. It's fascinating. And, you know, these type of things could be prepared, you know, decades, years in, uh, in advance. And, oh, yeah. you know, this is our little execution alley. <laughs> so the killing of the king would Give relate. Give him a dally. Yeah. Give him a dally. So the killing of the king would relate back, in my understanding, is if, if a king fails to bring good crops in or, or rain or something, this is more of the ancient, you know, primitive idea. Then they kill the king and put a new king in. And, yes, and it's also, someone also is called uh, Saturn. See, the Saturnalia was... Uh, Saturnalia, yeah, right. Sometimes they had king for a day, they called it, or a term, uh, a person who had all the benefits of a king. And uh, during that reign, uh, it was, he was called the, the author of misrule uh, because he would be um, in doing whatever he wanted to do. And Kennedy really thought he was president for a while, and uh, he was doing what he wanted to do. And then, of course, they, they kill them at, at, the, at the appointed time. Yeah. So, so this this would be in this case, if, if if he was out of favor, then killing of the king was commenced, something like that. We're going to be leaving here for a few minutes. Just we have a one minute break at the top of the hour, and we'll we'll bring you right back in. And this is getting this occult connection here is very very interesting, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we return. Thank you, Alan.